Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am very pleased to be joined today by a longtime friend, Ian Bremer who is the founder and the CEO of Eurasia Group. Every year, Eurasia Group puts together a list of the top risks. Uh, And since that's right up the alley of everybody who listens here to Deep State Radio, we thought we'd have Ian in and talk about some of those risks. How are you, Ian? Good to be with you, David. I mean, I'm as well as can be expected given the circumstances. Well, you know, in some ways, the circumstances are seem to be um, improving a little bit. Um, so we will, we enter the new year somewhat hopeful. Uh, and apropos of that, I was looking at your, your list and the number one, the top risk on it, um, is, is, is one that seems like maybe it got a little qualified in the past 24 hours because you have here, uh, 46 asterisks. So maybe you can explain what 46 asterisk means, and then I can follow up on that. Sure. Um, And look, the idea here is that the United States is not only the most powerful country in the world, but is also the most politically divided among the advanced industrial democracies. And that reality um, that you have an election in the United States that um, not half, but almost half of Americans think is illegitimate and stolen, even though it was not. Um, that American political institutions have eroded. Um, That that is indeed a very significant challenge, particularly uh, when you're in the teeth of this horrible crisis. Um, And and indeed, uh, you know, assuming that these two new Georgia seats hold up uh, for the Democrats, uh, life gets a little bit easier for President-elect Biden, but I I would still argue uh, that the level of political dysfunctionality in the United States still vastly exceeds that of Germany, Japan, Canada, France, Australia. And and given the state of the world, that deserves to be on pretty much anybody's list, number one. Um, Yeah, well, I think, you know, it certainly does make some sense to, to, to be number one. Um, it's interesting to me, actually, I was, I was, I was just talking to, uh, I was talking to Ed Luce, who's one of our regulars just a few minutes ago. And, um, we were talking about, you know, this kind of, there, there are two ways to spin the story of this, uh, of the Trump presidency in the last election, you know, Trump lost the white house. Now he's lost the Senate 2016 in 2018, he lost the house. Um, and you might think this is a, a sea change. On the other hand, 
I can't think of a time when things were more evenly divided. Trump eked out a victory in the Electoral College. Biden eked out a victory in the Electoral College. He got 7 million more votes. But, you know, when you look at the Electoral College and you and you look at things like what happened in Georgia, where the Democrats, you know, we get 50-50, the, the Democrats are, you know, the the, the the resounding Warnock victory was like 54,000 votes. Um, right now, I, I think Ossoff is at 17,500. So we really are profoundly divided. And I guess the question I've got is, how do you think that's likely to manifest itself over the course of the next, say, 12 months? Um, look, I, I, I'm clearly much more aligned with the way you just framed that. Um, with, with the idea uh, that this is uh, not something that the Democrats should take sudden solace about, okay, you know, good times are back. If it, the fact is that if it weren't for a pandemic that was massively mishandled, I mean, in historic ways, in, it, starting with the president of the United States with over 350,000 dead, I think it's pretty clear that he would have won a second term. And that, that's a fairly astonishing thing to say, given, given what his four years have been like. And that, that speaks to the erosion of institutions in the United States. So, you know, when I, when I think about why these institutions have eroded, I, I, I think about the fact that for the average American, look, it's the flip side of capitalism. We in the United States are better than anyone in the world at unharnessing animal spirits and entrepreneurship and individualism and business. And that's great, except that we don't do much on the other side in terms of a social safety net. And when capitalism changes dramatically, and it's only accelerated under coronavirus, um, when suddenly the, the actual labor inputs of a big part of your population become increasingly marginal to capitalism itself, then you have to structurally change the safety net. You have to structurally change the way the government represents these people. This is, of course, this is a much bigger problem in the United States than in places that never had that kind of unfettered individualist capitalism like Canada and Germany and France. Like there is a reason why the United States is now much more dysfunctional. And it's because the underlying precept of how the economy and the markets work actually go against the way America had been representing the average citizen. So what that says to me, look, the thing that I, I'm most optimistic about with Biden, if he takes the Senate, if he takes these two seats, is that we do get the $2,000 checks we do get a couple more trillion dollars of stimulus. And, and that really does matter to a bunch of working Americans that otherwise would have been evicted from their homes, would have, you know, would have been unemployed and would have had no capacity to take care of their families. That's, that's obviously important, but nobody pretends that's a structural fix. And the kind of structural fix we're talking about requires a lot more than a 50-50 split in Senate. I think it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more challenging. Yeah, no doubt. And I think one of the things that struck me when I read your description of this in the, in the, in the, the risk review is that you, it, it, it's, it says accurately that we're not only the most politically divided 
um, of the world's leading economies. We're the most economically divided of the world's lead, leading economies. And that's not something that happened under Trump. It's a 40-year trend. Um, and it's going to take a long time to make those structural changes. Um, having said that, I am optimistic that this is an administration that may prioritize it. But there, there is this other problem. And your number two risk is, is, is long COVID. Um, now, you know, long COVID, we do regular podcasts talking about COVID with Lori Garrett and Kavita Patel and some others. And, you know, we don't see any projections of COVID ceasing to be a factor before the very end of this year, because it's going to take so long to administer vaccines. Something that would complicate that quite dramatically, which relates to your first point, is if red-leaning states took on a sort of adversarial role with the Biden administration. And, and they wanted to blame the Biden administration for what happened. And we got into blame game as opposed to coming together to solve this problem. And, you know, I, I think what struck me in, in the idea of long COVID as a global risk is it reminds us that right now we are all in a community. We're in a community in the US. There is no red solution that is not a blue solution unless we solve. But, but there's no global solution unless the United States figures out how to deal with this and other economies that are you know, connected to the world do because it'll just keep circling around. Um, what, what's, what are your expectations as you look ahead to the year what do you mean by long COVID? And, and would you say you are colored sort of on the optimistic or the pessimistic side? Well, I mean, David, let me, let me start by saying something at least a little optimistic because we had huge debates internally as to whether or not long COVID should have been the number one risk. I mean, you're in the middle of this horrible pandemic, worst crisis of our lifetimes. Um, how can you not say that's number one? And, and the, the main point was that the vaccines are just, they're so so much more effective, so much more quickly than any epidemiologist would have dared hope last year. And indeed, over a matter of, you know, eight, 10, 12 weeks, uh, we, we can get to 10% of the United States and Europe and Japan vaccinated, the wealthy world. And when you get 10% vaccinated, that's almost all of the people that are actually truly vulnerable in terms of mortality from this disease. So we, we could be looking, entering spring, mortality from coronavirus could be one-tenth of what it is right now. And, and, that, and since the risks are looking at the entire year, that to me really swung the balance. But, but you know, in 2020, at least, the economic response to COVID, both in the developed world and the developing world, and even here in the United States, red state versus blue state was horrific in terms of the healthcare response, the mask response, the testing response, all of this. But at least, you know, Mnuchin and Pelosi were able to get together and do some pretty significant, pretty quick relief and stimulus in 2020. As I look to 2021, I think the ability of the world to do that, um, it's going to be constrained in Europe, especially as Merkel is leaving. It's going to be constrained, especially in the middle and lower income countries. 
And those were countries that all got big bailouts from the IMF when they needed. They all were able to go to the markets and get credit as they needed 2020. I'm not so sure that's too true in 2021. So for me, coronavirus shifts, from, transforms from being primarily a human health risk in 2020 to becoming much more of an economic risk for the have-nots in 2021, both inside our countries in the advanced industrial democracies and also among the poorer countries around the world. That's why it's not risk number one, but it's also pretty significant and structural. It's pretty profound as we think about the rollout of all of this. And your, your point that it's not a red state or a blue state solution, my God, for me, the single biggest obscenity in 2020, and there were many of them, and I, I saw you post a bunch, uh, was when the United States, when Trump decided that we were going to leave the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, that, that, it's literally an obscenity geopolitically. And, uh, and then, of course, right now, I see the Chinese government refusing to allow the WHO access for their investigations into the origins of coronavirus. That's pretty broken geopolitically at a time that the world needs to come together. The two largest economies are doing anything but. And, and this obviously has big long-term implications. Yeah, it's interesting um, because it, you, you know your next point is climate net zero meets G zero, G zero being a term you coined um, regarding a world in which there is a kind of a, a, a lack of, of leadership because that resonates, that one. And also, you know, you have one called global data reckoning. You have another one on cyber tipping point. Um, and on on COVID, you mentioned WHO. One of the striking things about Trump, and in fact, you know, I think historically we may look back on it and say one of the most striking things was that he was incoherent in many respects, except on foreign policy one. He wanted to dismantle the international order that we, the U.S., led the development of for, for 75 years. And the, the international institutions that he sought to weaken were weak to begin with. And there were some, as in the area of cyber and data, um, uh, but you know, also in the, in the, in the area of uh, climate, where global mechanisms were non-existent or negligible to begin with. And so, you know, as we go into this year, you know, it, it, it just, to me, it, I, I guess it's a long way of saying, I've always thought of the G0 concept as a concept that pertained to how successful countries were at leading in, in the global context. But there is a kind of corollary, which is the institutional G0. You know, that if you don't have, you know, if you have good institutions and one country falters, things should keep going. But we don't have good institutions. And three of your risks here, at least, pertain to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you wanted to look at how I perceive the G0 geopolitically, and you, you sort of take the aperture from narrow to wide, you start with the willingness of the United States as the most powerful country in the world to actually continue to lead and promote and support the institutions that we've created. And, and obviously you and I have both just been discussing 
the many ways in which the United States clearly accelerated under Trump um, have worked to uh, undermine and dismantle that leadership, at least at the margins. Right? Then you have the geopolitical environment that is markedly less aligned with the United States today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. I would argue that the Xi Jinping's presidency is a more dramatic and impactful shift on the geopolitical environment than Obama to Trump or Trump to Biden, in the sense that dismantling um, the term limits of the Chinese leadership, Belt and Road, uh, leading, uh, being dominant in AI by 2035, the AIIB, um, you know, all of this stuff is actually a more significant shift for the world's second largest economy and catching up with the U.S. very quickly. Then you've got Russia in decline, very angry, undermining the United States. You've got a weaker and more uh, fragmented Europe, especially given, you know, post-Brexit and the quote-unquote successful Brexit. So that's the second piece is the geopolitical environment. And then you've got the third piece that you just kind of pointed to, which is that the institutional framework itself is not only weaker, but it's also increasingly not relevant to the challenges that we have today. I mean, if you were gonna create NATO from whole cloth, it wouldn't be transatlantic in focus. It would, you'd have Japan, you'd have Australia, you'd have South Korea's members, you'd focus much more on China too. It would deal much more with technology and cyber than it would just with nukes. But you can't create NATO from whole cloth. If you wanted to create a new world trade organization, it would focus on services and data and not as much on, you know, sort of commodities and goods and manufacture. That, but you can't do that. You can't. I mean, even something simple like the fact that the two countries in the world, the two democracies that are most aligned towards supporting multilateralism and rule of law are Germany and Japan. And these are the two countries that cannot become permanent members of the Security Council because they lost World War II. Now, that is objectively a very stupid reason, and yet it persists. So I think if you, if you take all three of these, I hate to be wonky about it, but levels of analysis, you know, and, and I'm on deep state, so I can talk about levels of analysis. Yeah, no, and we, like, start, we, we live wonky. I know. So you start with the U.S., you then move to the geopolitical, and then you talk about the, institu the institutional architecture and framework on all three of these levels you're moving into an environment that structurally is a lot more G0. And that becomes particularly problematic when you are facing a global crisis like coronavirus or like unfettered cyber attacks and no deterrence because there's just no leadership and coordination or architecture that helps you deal with them. No, that's right. And I think, you know, we're at clearly at um, a kind of present at the creation moment, you know, that, uh, to refer to the Dean Acheson book about the, yeah. the period that followed World War II, where we led in the establishment of global institutions. They have faltered, they've become obsolete. There are some areas where we need one and we don't have them. And, and no, there is no country that can step up and lead that creation if we're not willing to. And we yeah. simply have not been willing to. And, you know, you mentioned the China rivalry and you talk about, you know, the, 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 the or, or American leadership and, and, and you talk about the effect of Trump or the effect of Obama or the effect of, of Bush. Well, I think all three of them have contributed to the United States retreating from that leadership role in different ways. And, um, and, and, and we can debate 
the degree, but clearly 20 years after the beginning of the century, the United States is not the hyperpower that it was, you know, talk, that was being talked about in the 1990s. It does bring us to, you know, the, you know, I think here, number four was U.S.-China tensions broaden, and we, we, we have a limited amount of time, but I, and perhaps we can use that as a jumping off point because um, uh, that's the key bilateral relationship in the world. And it was lousy under Trump for a variety of reasons. It's going to be tough under Biden for a variety of reasons. I think it's one of the areas where the attitude of the two administrations may be closest in terms of tension. Um, but in the past 24 hours, we've seen a, a roundup in Hong Kong of a bunch of democracy leaders. Um, the Chinese um, are um, really pushing ahead with uh, some really um, blunt force, brutal approaches to civil society, both in Hong Kong and, and uh, in the Northwest with the Uyghurs. Um, and this is a potential flashpoint. And st stepping away from the, the, the kind of the model that you're using here, as you look at the year ahead, where are the potential flashpoints, the potential places that you see Joe Biden being tested and the international system being tested, not by long-term trends, but by momentary crises? I guess I would say, you know, broadly speaking, China, Russia, and at home. Uh, I mean, these are the big problems for the U.S. I'm not as worried about North Korea testing the U.S. and popping off an ICBM because they want more money or they want us to sit back at the table. Iran, you know, they're right now enriching at 20%, which is closer to weapons grade because they want to ensure that, you know, Biden sits back down and gets the JCPOA redone. But, I, you know, I don't, I don't see conflict breaking out there. But, but, you know, with the Chinese, yeah, I mean, I, I think these are, these are big fights. The fact that China is right before this, you know, Biden becomes president, they're, they're not slowing down. They're, they're, they, they did as much as they could to get this European trade deal done, and they got it done. And they're, they're pushing ahead as much as they can on reintegration of Hong Kong, only one political system, and they don't care if they get criticized. The WHO and refusing to provide visas, same thing. Um, and, you know, I would also add to that that China's own domestic leadership, Xi Jinping, is not without internal challenges. And all of this plays well for him at home, too. So I, I think that the United States and China are heading for very serious rivalry and confrontation. And that even though Biden will normalize the relationship somewhat, he's not going to be sending off volatile tweets. He's not going to refer to coronavirus as the China flu. But, but the underlying relationship has virtually zero trust and far too many tension points. And many of them could become really serious. And, and what worries me, I mean, I don't believe that we are in a Cold War with China uh, at all. The level of interdependence is far too great for that. But I see many areas where, places where we are interdependent and we are becoming less so. And I, I certainly see that in the way that our economies interact. Uh, and the biggest thing I can say about that, the most structural, but it's playing out everywhere, is that China's 
move towards becoming a true global power was all about Chinese labor serving as the factory for the world. And not only was that a way that they were able to grow, but we actually facilitated it. Even though we were gonna lose a bunch of jobs in the United States, we were like, you know what? This is, this is good for our growth, it's good for the world. We're gonna facilitate that. China's growth in the next five, 10 years is not about cheap labor anymore at all. Their labor is more expensive. The competition domestically is much too sharp. And almost any CEO you talk to says they can make more money with fewer people, given automation and AI and all the rest. China's new global model is not about cheap labor. It's about controlling more data and being able to monetize that than anybody else in the world. And they do have more data. But this time around, the United States is not going to facilitate it. In fact, we want to undermine it. We think it is zero sum with us. And I, I see that as a huge fight immediately. It's not just 5G. It's digital currency. It's Jack Ma and Ant Financial and FinTech. It's the smart grid. I mean, it's an awful lot. It's becoming a much bigger piece. It's anything with a chip in it. So it's becoming a much bigger piece of the global economy. And I worry that the thing that helped ensure that we didn't have a Cold War with the Chinese is suddenly eroding much more quickly than our ability to respond to or manage. Yeah, and, and it's certainly impossible to manage on a bilateral basis. And I think that goes back to the prior point. One of the big gaps is that we need some kind of multilateral mechanism for ensuring uh, data security, cybersecurity, rules of the game, rules of the road, and dispute resolution. And it, it, if we do this country by country, it's never going to get done. And yeah. so this is this is clearly an area. We only have a couple minutes left. Um, I, I encourage people to go and and look at this list. And as you go down the list from there, there's Turkey, there's the Middle East, uh, there's Europe after Merkel. And, you know, your number 10 is Latin America disappoints. And, you know, that could be the number 10 for, you know, every year you could just leave it in place. Um, but what, I, what, I, what I'd like to do is, is just pose one last question um, about what's not on the list. Um, because I, I suspect, you know, that's inevitably how some people look at these things, you know. Uh, you have massive portion of the world population in Africa. Africa is rife with risks. They're just some of them so localized in uh, or regionalized in terms of their context that we tend not to be worried about them. And they're also, you know, limited in terms of their global impact. Um, you also have the, I, I think, extremely um, worrisome trends in India in terms of you know, the, the, the deterioration of democracy under Modi, uh, and not to mention tensions with China, Pakistan, and so forth. I'm just wondering, as you look at the list, you know, how, how, how would you address not just their absence, but, the, you know, what, what are the things that you, you know, are in the back of your mind as, 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 as important addenda to, you know, to it? Well, I mean, the fact that this is an annual list that looks at the year ahead and then allows us to, at the end of the year, go back and readdress it and say, how did we do? Um, if this were a 10-year look ahead as opposed to a one-year, uh, it, it wouldn't have the same disciplining impact on us, which is important to me. 
but you would have included both of those things because there are long-term trends that are playing out that really matter with big pieces of the global population. I mean, you know, a billion Africans, 1.4 billion Indians, and, and definitely uh, being impacted in ways that are not necessarily constructive. Africa, in terms of what happens on the back of climate, not being addressed until too late. Um, and India as the world's largest democracy that is increasingly becoming illiberal and technology facilitating that in a really big way. Both of those are serious, problematic, long-term trends. But are they problematic trends for 2021? Eh, the US is gonna have a, a strong relationship with India, especially because India-China tensions are growing. Uh, Kamala, her South Asian descent, I mean, there's already been lots of efforts on how they reach out to the Indian entrepreneur and business community in the United States, inviting maybe the foreign minister to come to help engage, for example, and show that the quad is still important, even though you're not saying good things about the illiberalism towards, let's say, Muslims, over 10% of the population in India. So I don't see that as a 2021 problem. I will tell you on Africa, I am of two minds. I mean, it frequently doesn't make lists like this because it only directly represents, you know, less than 2% of global GDP. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not important. I, I get more excited about Africa on the back of coronavirus because we're seeing five to 10 years of investment in new technologies in a very short period of time. And that means a lot more Africans, as well as Southeast and South Asians, are getting online faster. It means distance learning and distance medicine and efficiencies in agriculture as it becomes digitized is happening much more quickly, which affects the poorest part of the world. So I actually, I think coronavirus, at the same time that it's really putting the squeeze on the global middle class, such as it is, which would be also perceived as the working lower class in the advanced industrial democracies, probably ends up being a kick forward for some of the poorest people in the world that suddenly benefit in a few years from all of this, these advances from digitization that were otherwise coming too slowly. I think that's, I see that in Bangladesh, I see it in Southeast Asia across the border. Ethiopia has a hundred million Africans and they're not online. And they're mostly in agriculture and they're undereducated. And I think that human capital in a country like that is going to pick up faster on the back of coronavirus. That's a good thing. It's good to have a good thing. People always it's do good, global it's risk. good to have a good thing. People, yeah. people always have global risk lists. You know, they, well, you know, we could do with more lists of, you know, the 10 best things that are going to happen in two Screw these people with their global risk lists. So down, it's you very know, down, the whole time. You know, it's, you know, I know Wall Street cares about it, but like, you know, there's, you know, there are things that are going to happen in the year ahead. We're going to get over this virus. We're going to move ahead. There's going to be a growth spurt associated with that. The United States looks like it may start taking care of some of its people again. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not terribly optimistic about the UK right now, but you know, who knows? Scotland may make a move. You know, there, there, are, there are things that are positive in the year and ahead. And Boris Johnson is one of the least ideological leaders, heads of, uh, leaders of a country, advanced country that I've ever seen. And his ability to pivot on climate once Biden became president was pretty extraordinary. I, I, I'm, I, I think he'll get through this. Super charitable to say least ideological. Um, uh, 
he's, you know, he's, he's kind of like, let's try all the wrong things. And then, you know, eventually maybe we'll settle in on something that, that actually works. But um, look, I, you know, these are, these lists are important and uh, they lead to useful discussions like this. And I'm really glad that you could join us for this. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime in the future, because, you know, sometimes we get a little bit down in the weeds with what's happening this week and having a little perspective um, is uh, leavening. So thanks a lot, Ian, for joining us. Come back again soon. Congratulations on the list uh, and Happy New Year. And to you, David, I love the podcast and keep up the great work. Thank you very much. And for those of you who love the podcast and want to listen again, uh, go to uh, the dsrnetwork.com and see what we've got coming, uh, uh, our, all our usual podcasts and then some new ones where you can sign up and become a member. So the dsrnetwork.com. Thanks very much and bye-bye.